All right, and we'll get started here with Matthew 3 and 4. All right, so just as a the quick review as to where we're, we're coming back here. Um, they had just relocated Mary, Jesus, and Joseph to um, Nazareth. Nazareth, right? And uh, so it's, Matthew makes it, Matthew seems pretty, I would say it's pretty clear after going through this now twice, that they live in Bethlehem before this. It's, it, that's what it seems like to me. Um, and oftentimes within, even within the Gospels, we will find certain discrepancies between um, the four Gospels. Some of the most notable ones are between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John, just because the Synoptics are, are sharing so much information and John is almost compiled and, and written in a vacuum almost. I mean, obviously it's, so when you think about the life of Jesus, right? So Jesus is born, oh, somewhere between, there's varying, there's varying guesses on this, basically somewhere between like 6 BC to 6 AD. I mean, that, those are the farthest out of the two points where people would guess. So that year zero isn't too far off for where we base things. Um, I think the most popular one I've heard is that it was probably... How is it going which way? I can't remember. I think 3 AD is kind of the one that most settle on. And some of that has to do with what's found in the Bible about who's, who's alive and who's dead. The year Luke starts out with that census, and they kind of know when that census was, and it, I think it doesn't seem like it was year zero, so that's kind of where they, based on other records. Um, and what's interesting is the, the Gospels themselves um, obviously don't establish anything in sort of that year language that we're all concerned about. Um, they, they date things the way that societies in a lot of ways would back then. They date things off of events. Um, and so that's the way that they're giving their chronological telling, so to speak. But the discrepancies that we find in the Gospels, um, again, mostly between John and the Synoptics, where you find the bigger differences, the, the one that frequently gets pointed out is um, the the timing at which the, the passion and, and crucifixion resurrection takes place, it's a, it's a day different from John to the synoptics. Um, so there's a little bit of difference there. But you find this limited difference between, oh, let me see if I can remember my numbers here, between the synoptics because the Gospel of Matthew, I remember this one for sure, 20%, so one-fifth of the Gospel is of Matthew is only found in Matthew. The stories, the, the teachings, when they sort of cross-reference all these, 20% of Matthews is only in Matthew. And then I wanna say it is, I think he shares about 10% with Mark, something like 46% with Mark, and Luke, and who's good at math? What am I missing here? So 30, 76, so, and then shares 24% of the gospel with Luke. 
so when they when they look at Matthew and they look at all the Gospels, um, when they look at the Synoptics, so those the first three Gospels, this is this is what they get. So that original stuff in each Gospel, the the least original material. Come on in. Hi. Wow, we knew that would happen. The least original material um, of any of these Gospels is from Mark. Mark gets drawn on the most to to share stories with these other other Gospels. Um, Mark has very limited original content, which makes sense because Mark, they think, was written sometime around the year 60. Um, Luke and Matthew come later, and they usually date them broadly somewhere in the latter quarter of the first century. So the working hypothesis is, it has been, and this is, this is within the last 200 years that they've started to think this. When they looked at the gospel before, I think we mentioned last week, Matthew, so they have, they don't only have these four gospels, they have a number of texts floating around there at the time, several hundred years into Christianity, when they're deciding what canon, what scripture will, will contain. Um, they decide on these four because it's not entirely clear that they just like them the most, they're the most prolific being used by communities. In fact, a lot of the communities would have just had one of these Gospels before they started to synchronize. So for, you can imagine, several generations, a community of Christians in one area might only have Matthew or might only have Mark or Luke um, until they start to broaden the idea of the canon of Scripture. If you think about it, and we've, we've done some in this, um, in our Bible study, the Old Testament, most of the scripture in the Old Testament, except for a couple key places, stories only get told once. There aren't four different versions of Jonah in the Old Testament. You, you do find things like in the Torah, though, and we saw some of these as we read in from Exodus into Deuteronomy, where you had the same story being retold, but maybe with different emphasis sometimes. Jesus, in his, in his life and, and the way that Christianity spreads out, produces at least four different passed-down stories or collection of stories about his life that get compiled into these manuscripts that get known by these individual four names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, when they put the four together, um, there was pretty much universal agreement that Matthew was like the best gospel. It was the gold standard. It was the Cadillac of gospels. That's why it goes first. Now, they probably had, by that point, had already lost an idea of when they were written. They probably didn't have that. We, we have, in the last 200 years, through linguistic analysis and even carbon dating and finding documents in certain places and being able to date them alongside other documents, have said that Mark is probably the oldest. So what they used to think was Mark was basically someone had Matthew because of how much they share. They thought basically someone had the Gospel of Matthew and they just truncated it down. And that it was kind of like the Reader's Digest version of Matthew. Now what we think is these communities that developed into the, the Lucan and the, and the Matthew communities, they probably had Mark. And they expanded from there with the, the other stories that they had about Jesus in their midst. Just a little bit of background information. But obviously last week we had talked about right away as we get into the Gospel of Matthew, right, what are, what are some of the, 
the things we remember in chapters 1 and 2 that Matthew emphasizes, especially in comparison to Luke? Abraham. Starts with Abraham, and what is and what does that? It's for the Jews. Yeah, Jewish audience, right? That shows up clearly. So that shows up in the genealogy, which starts with um, Abraham, as opposed to Luke, who takes it all the way back to Adam. Just that emphasis on he's a person of the covenant versus emphasis he's related to all. So genealogy. What was the other thing that that Matthew makes strong use of? emphasizes Joseph's story. Okay, that's that's another part we can tie into this Jewish identity good because Joseph is the, and Luke, Luke in the same way, the genealogy for both, for Jesus goes through Joseph, which we kind of talked about, they're just not concerned that he's not blood related to him. He's part of the household, he's part of the family. But goes through Joseph, and Joseph is a descendant of David. David. This is, the, this is the link to the Davidic line. And if you, are, if you are descended from the house of David, it means you can be what? The chosen one of God. Yes, sort of. Okay. So the chosen one of God. So the messianic fulfillment of prophecy that says it will come through the house of David also. But what's David's job? He's king. There's a little crown. So, th these two become linked, and there's certainly allusions to both within, like, the Psalms and certain parts of Old Testament prophecy. So, you would imagine that it says that the Savior, the Messiah, will come from the house of David. It's implied, but it's also, I think, doubled down on with this Davidic line that there's a kingship element to it, too. So that was that other part that, that Matthew really likes to use. He quotes Old Scripture, Old Testament Scripture and prophecy regularly, especially in establishing who Jesus is. All right, last thing for review before we get going, because they just left the scene. The three kings, or however many of these wise men, magi there were, brought three gifts. Gold, myrrh, frankincense. Gold, myrrh, and frankincense. And the gold represents a gift for... The king, the frankincense represents a gift for, who gets the incense priest. burned? Well, maybe a priest, but who gets in, who gets the incense bur burned for them? God. God. So frankincense, so you have the kingship, you have some sort of recognition for the first time of the divinity, and then you have the myrrh. Death. Death. Burial spice, right? And interestingly enough, that's also the first introduction of that idea. So the three kings and their gifts are, again, the magi, unnumbered, but their gifts are three. Their gifts give this sort of subliminal message that there's kingship involved, there's divinity involved, and something about death in the, in the person of this young child that they visit is also wrapped up in the importance of what will become of his life. All right. So let's get back into the story here. And we are going to fast forward quite a bit. So Jesus goes from being, oh, maybe three, four, five, to uh, fully grown and ready to begin his ministry. 
In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John was wearing clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is more, who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his right hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather, gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, so, what cheery fellow do we get to meet first in the story here? Uh, well, those are all comments of uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John comes on to the scene. Okay. So, and, and remember I said... One of the best ways, I think, for us to read, especially New Testament scripture, like a gospel like this, we want to keep Luke and Mark and John in mind for some contrast and compare stuff, but, but try to disassociate the other knowledge we have. So, who is John the Baptist so far in Matthew's gospel? Yeah. They haven't mentioned him. Okay, so this is his first mention, right? So he's new to the gospel. Reading what we just read as an introduction, does it seem like John is new or known to the people that this is being said to or read to? Well known because the priests and that know him. They've gotten the word. Okay. They're coming out to check on him. Maybe they can get rid of him. Okay, so he's well, it seems like he's he's already well known within the text, right? So that's a good observation. People, he's popular in, in that sense. Like he's do he's out there doing this work and people are coming to him. Good. How about how about for the general population? So now you have the stories of Jesus being told, right? Do they know who John the Baptist is? So we're sitting somewhere, it's the year 45 or AD, and Jesus resurrected a couple years ago, and we're hearing this story for the first time from someone. And we live in in Judea, or in the, in the overall area, because Matt, we're hearing Matthew's gospel. Do we know who John the Baptist is? Well, in verse 11, he's explaining the difference between him, his baptism, and the... So, 
It sounds like no, they didn't know. They needed to have that explained. I may have known, though, because he was beheaded. He was mm -hmm. all those things that people kind of, you know, their time, they, people went out for such things. You know, they... Yeah. So John, in his lifetime, and we'll get to this point where it's, it's, it will, there's always this question that we'll find here in a little bit about how many of John's followers become followers of Jesus. John had a big following. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of places, as we read through the Gospels, you get this feeling with the explanation of John the Baptist that he's already a known, quant he's a known entity, right? So the word of John actually, at first, traveled further than Jesus and had more followers. That's, that's what we think. So there's, there's a good assumption that if there's a pocket of people hearing this story, they might know who John is. What did you note there? So where does the explanation go? So I think the assumption is that he's not new, or he's not news, we could say, to the area. So what's the explanation for in verse 11. Well, he's introducing Jesus. Right. Jesus. Con contrasting his baptism with yeah. the baptism of Jesus. So it's almost like, it doesn't say it this way explicitly, but it's almost like, you've heard of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was out there doing his work. And these are the words of John. And in Matthew's gospel, in John's gospel, I want to say in Mark's gospel, too, we have this similar emphasis on kind of, you know who John is. And then John's going to be the first one in a public way to show Jesus and to explain Jesus. The rest of it so far has been relatively privately revealed information. Right? The kings come, so Herod and the people are alerted to the fact that a child has been born, but they don't know yet because the kings get warned, the magi get warned in the dream, so they leave. So in Matthew's gospel, up presumably through the rest of Jesus' adolescence and adulthood to this point, who knows about who Jesus is as far as Matthew's let us know? Mary. Mary. Joseph. And Joseph. It's it's a family. It's kind of a family secret. The Magi knew, but they they left. So no one knows who Jesus is yet in the in the story. John is the one that introduces him publicly now. Right? We get this, so there's these, there's sort of this dual track thing. We get the narration story of all these things that happened. And then we also get the story as if it's the public view at that time. And a lot of literature does that, right? You get, you get the inside and the exterior view of something. So you probably know John the Baptist. Well, this is what John the Baptist had to say. And you know what John the Baptist was doing. You kind of know his story. He was out there and he was baptizing people. What is John's ministry? What is he, what is he doing out there in the river? And what is he doing and saying here in the gospel? He's trying to get the people to identify that they are sinners. 
Okay. In need of um, redemption. Another R word. Redemption comes from God. What is John's ministry is calling them to do something? What, what's, what's John? Yeah, but that's that. I mean, that's right. But that's not the word we use. What's Repent. the word? Repent. <laughs> this repentance ministry, right? And repentance is change. It's changing direction, really, and kind turning. of at its root, turning or turning. Yeah, it's this repentance ministry. Why should the people repent? This isn't trick questions, right? Like, I mean, this is what he says. Uh, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ah. Mm-hmm. Either way. This is he who has spoken of by the prophets of Isaiah. Okay, so we get it. We get an Isaiah quote, right? Very, very Matthew. We're going to quote the prophecy, and the prophecy that we get linked for John is, who is he? We'll come back to the the kingdom of heaven here in a second. So who's who's John in the in the Isaiah prophecy? The voice in the wilderness. Say what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight path. Yes. Okay. So. If that's John's role, right? That's who John is. Who isn't John? Who isn't he? Yeah. He's not the Savior and the Redeemer. Right. Those roles are split into two. So clearly identifying from Isaiah who he is also lets you know who he's not. Because guess what a lot of people thought John the Baptist was? He thought he was the Redeemer. He was the one, right? So Matthew quoting Isaiah and showing the work here. Now, interestingly enough, we have this prophecy from Isaiah, right? So for Isaiah, the one pointing and preparing the way of the Lord, where does he live? Out in the wilderness. And where does John the Baptist live? Out in the wilderness, right? So you get that clear one-for-one sort of idea there. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's saying these things, and he's saying these things because he's not the Messiah. But his job is to pray the way. What information does Matthew not give us to this point? Now let's draw in our Luke. What information do we not have about John the Baptist in relationship to Jesus? We don't know if he has physically seen him. Well, he hasn't yet. We didn't get to that but, part well, yet. But we assume, you know, because they're relatives. But, mm. they... but does, does Matthew say they're relatives yet? No. No. Right, so we bring that in from Luke. And we'll see if, I can't remember or not. I like going through slow. I don't can't remember or not if Matthew's going to emphasize or, or not have that. But as far as as far as far we're reminded of, he's just a guy out there in the wilderness. And we know of him. Maybe we thought he was the Messiah at one point. Maybe we're ex-disciples of John or something like that. Um, but Matthew wants to lay out clearly, like, look, here's the, here's the Isaiah prophecy. Here's who John is. Here who he's not. Now we said it's this repentance ministry, change, change, change. And why why the change that John says next? The kingdom of heaven is coming. Okay. So these, this whole term and this term specifically. Okay.
Okay, and there's a couple ways we translated this, right? So you have is coming. What would you, what did yours have? And Mary, what did Mary Haas, what did yours have? The kingdom of heaven is? I think mine said at hand, but I can't. At remember. hand, okay. <laughs> and I think yours said near. All right, so let's first look at this. What is the kingdom of heaven? What does that sound like to you? What is what is kingdom of heaven? It's the, the universal rule of God. Okay, good. Kingdom is interchangeable in the Greek with reign. Now, sometimes it will be translated like that in the Bible. I, I tend to think that's actually better because sometimes we... They're both a noun, but we, we noun this a little too much. And what I mean by that is that the kingdom of God is just going to be this thing that comes and is. And that's part of the nature of the kingdom of God. I think sometimes when we think about the reign of heaven, just in the English it sounds a little bit different to us. Because it's not just the, the passive coming of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's this sort of active kingship and reigning over. Maybe I'm maybe I'm losing you here, but this the, the ruling of God. The what? The ruling. The rule, of, yeah, the ruling of God, the ruling of as it is in heaven, is is coming, is at hand, is near. So, if you hear that the kingdom or reign of heaven is coming, is at hand, or is near. What, is that, what does that mean? It's going to be a political change. Okay, good. So there is a political nature to it. Even in just the, the base root of what it means to be political, this idea of how things are governed and how power is, is uh, worked out. Right? So there's a political change to it. But what about, what about the timing of it? Well, it's now. Or it's within your lifetime. It's soon. Right? It's not just enough. This, this is the one I, I dislike the most. It's not wrong, but it's, it's missing a little bit. So when they translate, the kingdom of heaven is coming, mm, that's a little bit. That could be now. That could be however, however infinity in the future from now is coming. Is near or is at hand is closer to what John is saying here. Repent for the kingdom or reign of heaven is near, now near. Okay? In fact, might it already be starting? So, this is the proclamation of John the Baptist describing who Jesus is as he's coming, describing the reign and kingdom of God that will come, so you all need to repent. And then what's the next thing that happens here, starting at 13? Then Jesus comes and uh, he's baptized. 
Aha. My job. And what is that? What does that do? Potentially, one. What's one way that you could see that related to this? It's like the beginning of be this reign. It is yeah. the ushering in, ushering in of the reign of heaven. And how near and at hand is it? So John's out there saying this and saying this. And then again, so you have the public contemporary view of what's going on, and then you have our internal view. So as we're kind of flying over at this point at that 30,000 feet, here's John, here's what he was saying, and then for us here in Matthew, what's the next thing that happens? Jesus appears. Jesus shows up. So for us hearing this, we get, we get the immediate picture that when John's talking about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, well, guess what? The kingdom of heaven just got ushered in and showed up. They're at the river. This is, this is about the Jesus movement that's about to begin. Yeah, there's a lot of talk, wasn't there, that uh, uh, John the Baptist had been uh, with the people at the uh, where they found the uh, scriptures, and they, that there were people who studied the scriptures and that mm -hmm. in the wilderness. And oh, the Essenes. There. And then there's even thought that maybe Jesus had been there too. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. And, and there were certainly for many, you know, decades at least, still followings of Joe 9, John's disciples. Because what happens when people are discipled in that era? They get discipled, they have a message, maybe they take it elsewhere. And maybe the news is slow or doesn't get to them for a long time. So by the time they're starting to tell the story of Jesus, right, which is not long after his resurrection, and then you have the story of John, so he's going to be killed within a three-year window before that. Now as you're bringing this story of Jesus out, you're telling you're going to these followers of John who are still potentially the followers of John. Maybe didn't know he died. The first time they're going to hear it is when you show up and tell the story of Jesus, right? And then the idea is you're already following John. You're like halfway there. Now let's tell you about who John really was, and then we're going to tell you about Jesus too. So that's part of the reason John plays such a critical role in these Gospels. And, and why so much is sort of why there's that extra emphasis on that almost doesn't make sense to us about how much they explain explicitly that John is not the one. You wouldn't necessarily have to put that in unless you're talking to people who think that John might have been the Messiah. Right. And that's for them, right? So if you're a follower of John, boy, I better have part of my story of Jesus be where John says, you know, said at one point, oh, I'm not him. Like my job is just to, to show the way for Jesus. All right, so let's move on to the baptism. So this is 13 through the end of the chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, 
This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Okay. So let's first talk baptism. It's a little murky how and how much and what times baptism was used or when it started. We get a pretty clear picture, though, that in the early first century, it's just it's a thing. And maybe that sounds simple, and I guess it just has to be for our own use, but they don't really have to explain baptism too much, other than it's a ritualistic washing away of one's sins that was being done at least by large enough that groups and people, amounts of people that it seems commonplace to the writers of the gospel. So it's also not something that's necessarily limited to um, the Israelites or, or Jewish people. Um, at that time, you would have had various religions in the, in the Near East who would have participated in some similar thing. Um, it's a little bit too much for our understanding of baptism as Christians, um, but there are still s symbolic and ceremonial uses of washing and water when it comes to, um, say, Islam that, it, that have been retained. So when you go in for worship, you ritualistically wash, wash up, um, partly not just ritualistic, it helps everyone be clean too, but you wash up before you go in. Why? I don't know if anyone lives there. Why would a water, a water ritual, um, well, why a water ritual, do you think? Well, you get rid of whatever you're carrying that isn't good. They, they, right. So they, they know what washing is, whether they do it a whole lot. Um, you know, kind of ebbs and ebbs and flows, so to speak, within within antiquity. But they they certainly know what it means to be washed and cleaned, right? And if not their own selves, often there's this ritualistic washing that also takes place of dishes and items. Um, as we were going through the Old Testament, there's that whole sort of ritualistic washing that has to take place of all those elements. Um, if you remember that, before they get added into the things that are used as holy, yeah. So obviously, just there's there's a there's a physical cleanliness aspect to it that you can make symbolic. Why why else might water be something that would show itself, especially in that in that area? Well, it wasn't much. It's arid, right? Not quite as arid as it is today, but it's an arid land. And if you think about an arid land versus a, a wet place, the value you place on water just in your daily life changes. In West Virginia, we don't have to think about water too much other than that we might have too much of it most of the time. If you're in an arid place, just water has significant importance to your life. You got to go get it from the well. You got to bring it back. You got to, you're probably not drinking it a whole lot. You're mixing it with some sort of alcohol in order to drink it safely a lot of the time, but you're using it for as much as you can and it's, and it's a scarce commodity um, or at least harder to acquire. So there's importance to this water. There's the washing cleaning thing that gets transferred over to be a little bit more symbolic and it just becomes this practice. For Jesus, 
right? What's the, what is what are some of the things that John notes or objects to when Jesus comes here to be baptized? He doesn't think he should baptize Jesus. Doesn't think he should baptize him. That means what? Jesus is more important than John is. Okay, good. We will lay on to that, I don't think wrongly, but with our tradition that's developed around ideas of original sin and all this, we will, we will sometimes say, well, it's not necessary because he, Jesus was sinless and he doesn't have any sin, so he doesn't really need the baptism. I think John here in Matthew's gospel is going more for what you just said, Mary. Right? It's another way of John commenting that Jesus is more important. Jesus is more important. And Jesus is more, um, I think you can read in holy because this is a holiness movement. This is a, this is a spiritual religious movement that John is participating in. Um, John baptizes him, though. Jesus explains it away here in Matthew's gospel that basically it just has to be done to fulfill all righteousness. This is just one of those things that has to happen. What happens here in Matthew's gospel when Jesus emerges? What does he mean by fulfill all righteousness? Just that it's it's something that was to fulfill all righteousness. It's, it just sort of needs to be done in order for everything to be as good and proper. It's proper order. Yeah, it's pre-planned, it's proper order. This is just the way it has to go. That's the reason this is going on. When Jesus comes, now this is Matthew's gospel. When Jesus comes up from the water, then what's what happens? Well, it's not clear to me whether Jesus hears the word or every <sighs> hears the word. Okay, so. But the dove comes. <laughs> I guess they'd have to see the dove, but that wouldn't necessarily. Some other gospel, something doesn't talk about John, that John sees or hears. So read this again. Who's seeing and who's hearing? My translation, they actually tend more to it being John. Because the, the way they've, they've decided to translate it is, then he, and John there stands in place so that he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, boy, it's, it's still vague. Suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. There's a lot of he's and hems. There. There's a lot of singular he's and hems that make right. this a little bit more confusing. Because um, usually <laughs> the last person named you know, in the English language so in the, it refers to that. So in this case, it seems like Jesus. That would be Jesus. It seems like Jesus in this case. If, and I'll flip to this, you don't have to. You can stay there in Matthew and yours. But just for comparison, here's John's gospel. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus is baptized in, I'm going to say, three and, three and a half of the gospels. Um... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is all clearly baptized. John, of course, is a little different because that's what John does. So here's John's, um, here's John's sort of description of this. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? 
He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me, comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John further testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So now who's seen it there? John. John. Is, is Jesus baptized in John's gospel? Uh, it doesn't say that he is, but he also is out there baptizing and Jesus comes towards him. And then he sees, and then something happens and he sees the Spirit descend on him like a dove and, and remain with him. That's why I say three and a half. John no, just... It's not explicit, it's not but it's implied. Now, when when it's implied there, so think about, we'll, we'll draw back in that, that experience there in John. The experience here that Matthew has is similar. When he came up from the water, suddenly he saw that the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So, in both instances, what is the declaration that's made over Jesus after he's, his baptism? He's the one. He's the son of God. More than the one. He's the son of God. So this is, son of God is not... I think it's good in some ways to keep some of these things separate only because they don't, they weren't necessarily all prerequisites to be together in one. So there's kingship, there's the chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior, right? Or the Christ, which also is just this term. And then you have introduced here, Son of God. Now, if we jump back here in Matthew, let's look at Matthew um, chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is Joseph speaking with um, the angel. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother had been engaged to Joseph, but before they had lived together, she, found, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. 
But when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So, let me ask it and answer this question. Yeah. Jesus and Emmanuel are the same. No. I mean, yes and no. Okay, actually, it's just another—it's another descriptive. We talked about this more as a descriptive title, and it—and that's one that doesn't come from the angel; it comes from the, from the, from the prophecy, right? So it's saying that the name is God with us in the prophecy. What Joseph has in his conversation with the angel, so obviously the, the prophetic part is there. That's Matthew adding that in. Is the vir- well, no, not the virgin, that's the prophecy. Let me not mix these up. Mary will do what? She will conceive a child from who? The Holy Spirit. By the, yeah. Could you become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, but not have it be the Son of God? Uh. It's, it's probably still, not. Probably not, but I mean, maybe. I don't know. It's it's not really entirely clear there. Um, and either as a way of of teasing it out fully, or just also because this is this is what happens, and and John's gospel and Matthew both share this. That Joseph knows about this conception by the Holy by the Holy Spirit. And it's from the Holy Spirit. I would say it doesn't necessarily relate to the, it doesn't exactly mean that that child is the son of God in that sort of capital S, capital G way. Something the Holy Spirit could do would be miraculous, but doesn't necessarily make that person the son of God. The prophecy, though, says what? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and which means, ah, and which we get to hear as the hearer, but Joseph isn't necessarily entirely sure of, I would say. There's definitely something special about a child being conceived by the Holy Spirit, but is it the son of God? Is it Emmanuel? Does, does Joseph put that together? Matthew certainly does. But here at the baptism, the words from the, the sky or wherever they emanated from are pretty clear. Jesus is son of God. That is, that is also his title. And that is then all these things then. Conception by the Holy Spirit, the name Emmanuel. And then this declaration, this is the Son of God. But even here, as we think about the public-facing ministry of Jesus, right? So let's go back to three. Oh, we're not going to get further than three today. That's all right. We'll have extra days in this group that we can catch up. And we'll just go faster on Sunday mornings. But 
this whole thing between Okay, so John's out there, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Who comes up to him then? Jesus. Jesus. Is their interaction public or private? Doesn't really tell us. Doesn't really tell us there, right? But is the witnessing of what happens through the proclamation of the Holy Spirit, is that publicly seen or is that private? We're really not sure of that either. I think I think here it's it's more of a private revelation. One of them, whether it's Jesus or John. And I think you could make the case when you bring in the other Gospels or when you look at the way this is written, that it's one or the other. But it's one of them that's getting to see this and experience this. Right? So as we continue to move into the, the ministry of Jesus then, um, who knows Jesus is the Son of God? and who he is at this point in Matthew's gospel. Not very many, right? So probably John, especially if John's the one that hears and sees this. Otherwise, John is recognizing that this is part of the kingdom that's coming near, or maybe he doesn't make that connection. Because again, is that information for us? Or is that information that John would make that connection on? John is out there saying what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But he's always saying that. That's his ministry. Forever long he's been out there. He knows that, that the kingdom of heaven is near. Then Jesus shows up. We get those things back to back. We as the hearers get to make that connection right away. But what does John recognize about Jesus? At its, at its lowest level. By their by their discourse about, um, or when they're talking about, you know, who's going to baptize who. Um, that Jesus is more important than John. That Jesus is more important than John. So whether, so whether John fully gets what we're getting here is a little bit unclear too. And a lot of it then will hinge on who gets to see what coming out of the sky. So if it's just Jesus, and you could read Matthew's version like that too, and John doesn't get to see it, and it's only Jesus seeing this, then the information is not yet fully known to John either. So there's going to be this this parceled out revelation of who Jesus is. Even to John. Maybe. Or maybe John's brought in here. Again, it's a little unclear, but it's still going to be... What's, so what's the difference if... And one of the other Gospels, I think, is a little bit more like this. What's the difference if the, the Spirit comes down and, and there's this loud, booming voice from heaven and everyone standing there gets to see and hear it? 
Then what does everyone know? They all know. They, they all know at that point. But if, it's, but if it's a little slower, so as we get later into Jesus' ministry, right, what does, now this is drawing forward a little bit, but we gotta, we got to start to wrap up. What does Jesus uh, not always want to be made known? That he is the Messiah. Right. Right. So, and this is where those, those points of separation are good for us to look at and think about. We get the whole story, we get everything off the bat pretty much in the Gospels. The people hearing it, though, they get it a little bit slower. And so when we connect that back to us then, see, the, the gospel sort of put us in this, we're meant to go along with usually the disciples and those hearing and experiencing Jesus in real time. So we get to have that too, but we're, we're constantly unable to detach ourselves from hearing the first parts and the hidden parts of the story, the narration parts, which tell us who Jesus is. And sometimes we find ourselves more on one side or the other. If everybody around her, then the priests and everybody else who was there being baptized, they'd go back and the news would get to Herod and Herod would go after Jesus. Well, that Herod's dead. We're, we're, on, to, we're on to new Herod now. But you're right. It would create yeah. quite a hubbub <laughs> right off the bat. And I mean, um, so they go after him, and they wouldn't allow him to go around the countryside, you know, doing the miracles and, and, and answering the questions and preaching. Yeah. He wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, so some of that has to be pieced out. We get to know, but some of it for those folks in real time has to be slow-rolled a little bit. Let me turn real quick. We'll go, we'll go a minute or two over. Let's go to... Let's look at the other Gospels and their baptismal narratives. So let's... Let's just go in scripture order here. So Matthew to Mark. And so three out of, excuse me, three and a half, as I like to say, times he's baptized. In, um, in Matthew and in Luke, that's where we sometimes sort of offhandedly say we get the Christmas stories, right? We get, we get a little bit of young Jesus. Mark and John pretty much start with this experience of interacting with John the Baptist as the first point of, of Jesus' life, first recorded point of Jesus' life. So, the baptism here. All right, right off the bat. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. What's this? Okay. Um, and a voice from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Okay, there was this, you are my Slight, son. Then uh -huh. you know it's talking to Jesus. Right. 
So there's one where it's, it's, it's pretty clear that this is, this is information for Jesus and that some have called the messianic secret. Mark, Mark really wants to slow roll who gets to know what when. So it's clear in Mark that it's only Jesus getting this information. How is it phrased in Matthew? I'll flip back here quick. If you guys want to make it to Luke with the baptism. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So there's that slight difference there. So that would lend itself, I think, more in the camp of John being the hearer now in, in Matthew's gospel. So maybe John does get to know at this point. He certainly does in John. Matthew, it's a little ambiguous. Mark, it's kind of clear that Jesus is the one hearing these words. Let's see what Luke makes of it. And we'll end with that. Baptism. John answered, and so I'm just picking up here at 16, chapter 3. John answered all of them, saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added them all, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the spirit, the heaven was open, and the spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. way that's worded it's kind of the order is odd because they're talking about John being imprisoned mm -hmm. and then Jesus being baptized after that I mean the way it's worded it it could be taken to mean that it doesn't say John baptized him it just said Jesus was baptized yeah not 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 definitely. He might already be in prison, or that might be kind of the future information. Right. But you're right. It's not, not entirely clear there. The way it was is worded, it's a little unclear. But when does it come? When does the voice and the and the bodily form of the dove come to Jesus here? It says it descended upon him in bodily form and a voice came out. But when, when does that happen? And when he had also been baptized and was praying. Yeah. The heaven opened. So in Luke, or excuse me, in Matthew and in Mark, down in the water, out of the water, opens up. This sounds like it might be later. Yeah, here in Luke, he's baptized. Maybe it's the same day or a couple minutes later, but he goes off somewhere to pray, and that's when it happens. So the ordering's a little bit different here right. in the timing. Um, so then it's definitely not, it sounds like it's definitely not John here experiencing this. Right. But it appears that Jesus is baptized, and then he's around with the rest of the people, but then we are told he goes to the wilderness. So he doesn't hang around John listening to what John has to say. Like other people. At least not. Well, in this one, so then that's this is when 
the ancestry comes in, in Luke, which we talked about. It's chapter 4. Mm -hmm. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was for 40 days tempted. So when does that happen? After he's baptized. How soon after? We don't know. Well, it sounds almost like it's pretty close. It's close, but it's not right away, right? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He at least has to go somewhere. Right? I mean, it's not, it's not just saying he just got out of the river. He actually... He, went, he had to go to the Jordan, then he comes back to wherever, probably maybe into... Yeah, because we don't know where in the Jordan he's baptized. Does no, but so, so just hear that about how Luke describes that timing, right? And then I'm pretty sure here it's going to be in... Aha, here in Mark. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was, and just as, right away, right? And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Mark loves to keep things. That's why his is shortest. He loves to keep things choppy and going, right? But it's that difference. Just as he came out of the water, boom, this happens. Gets out of the water immediately after he's baptized. Like there's no there's no delay. Right out into the wilderness to be tempted. Luke he gets to travel a little bit. Uh, since we're already into it, let's let's go back to Matthew real quick and look at that timing. And a voice from heaven said, "This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased." Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So pretty close timing, again. But Luke, it's not. It's not so rush-rush. Mark, it's very rushed. Matthew, it seems like it's right away, but it doesn't have that same urgency to it. Luke, he gets to travel for a little bit, and then he's going to go out into the wilderness. So, a little bit. You almost get that sense in the Luke version. It's almost like he... You can almost... It feels more like the Spirit is like calling him, like, okay... Let's go to the wilderness now. In Mark, it's like, come on, <laughs> like, now. Moving right along. You are pushed out there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but see, we don't know what Jesus was doing prior to going out to be baptized. And we know he's about 30 years old. Well, and we don't, we do get, hmm. you're right. We don't know. And we also don't know if this is, this seems like the start of his ministry. Now, whether that means he was engaged in anything related to anything like this is a little unknown, but this is kind of the, the start. Exactly. One, of, one of the really interesting, what time is it? Oh, who cares? One of the, let's, let's go back to John real quick. And then we'll end, I swear. Just because you brought up what Jesus was doing. Well, they say he's a carpenter's son, but they don't necessarily... We're going to get that information later. We don't, we don't, they don't refer to him as a carpenter if he's a carpenter's son. So this is going to be John chapter, probably two here. No, chapter... 
chapter 1, 24, chapter 1, 24 through 28, let's say. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one of whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Where is the Messiah on that day? He's in Bethany. Mm-hmm. Well, where, where, what, what were we meeting? We don't know, do we? I'm going to read he it again. He says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, but we don't know what he's doing uh, that day. Listen again. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Well, was he just part of the throng of people out there? Maybe. He might be part of the throng of people. That's one possibility. What else could John be saying here? Did he even see her left? No, I don't, think, I don't think that's it. Who's who's been sent? Who? What group is speaking to him? The uh, Pharisees. Ah. What said they were sent from the Pharisees? Right. Right. So this is a group sent from the Pharisees to interrogate who John is and what he's doing, and he says. The person that's coming next, you don't know him, stands among you. He could have just been someone in the greater crowd. He could have been one of the member of the party of Pharisees sent to investigate who John was. He could have been a Pharisee from somewhere else. One of the things that has often been wondered or speculated about Jesus is that he was, in fact, a Pharisee. Who is a lot of Jesus? Who has a particular interest in Jesus? What group? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, right? What were the Pharisees? They were the upper, educated upper... Now, and let me see here where it says, um, so back here at 19, this is the testimony given by John when, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. Okay, so that's, that's, that's potentially one group. All right, forget that. That's not as clear as I thought it was there. The Pharisees... Enough. 
Pharisees are a they are they are not the uppity up. Muckabee monks. Who are? The priests who may or may not have been in one of these other groups. Um, so along with the Pharisees, you always hear about the Sadducees. Sadducees, right? Sadducees. Probably, if anything, the, the, the ruling folks fell more in this camp with the Sadducees, or nothing at all. So I almost think about it like, it's kind of inside baseball, but within the Roman Catholic Church, you have, you have diocesan priests, which are your sort of standard work in a parish, work under the, the bishop of the diocese, right? And then you have religious priests who are a member of an order. So like a Franciscan priest is ordained through an order and they tend to be less involved with the organization of the church. They're kind of out doing their own thing. So that's a bad way to put it, but they're, they have their emphasis, which leads them to do their own thing sometimes. You had these ruling chief priests and elders and scribes and all, all this sort of stuff. They were more like your diocesan organization. They were the church. They, they, they were kind of the powerful. Sadducees and Pharisees were movements. And specific to the Pharisees, so one of the key differences right off the bat, one of these groups believes in resurrection after death and one doesn't. Pharisees Sadducees don't. don't. Sadducees don't and Pharisees do. Right? So... For Jesus, we can tell you, I can tell you Jesus was not a Sadducee. Because Jesus clearly believes in resurrection. There is one other Pharisee of note in the New Testament. Who is it? Paul. Paul. Hebrew of Hebrew, Pharisee of Pharisees. Pharisees are mostly a lay-led, so not priests, not temple, temple types, um, what are some of the attributes we find from the Pharisees? Oh, and they're mostly sort of like a middle-class, working-class movement, as opposed to the upper gentry. Because in every society, right, um, or at least in, in those with these religious orders, when you start to have established religion and you start to have the upper crust of those folks, they're as much concerned about the organization and the the keeping status in society is everyone else. What are, what are the Pharisees' concerns or over-concerns that Jesus talks about in the gospel? Always law. The, the law or the, this is how it's always been, this is the way it is. They're rigid, right? They want to rigidly keep the law. Because maybe, why would a counter-movement like that start if you have a society where your upper group of religious leaders is in this very weird spot where they're under this Roman control and, and all this stuff, they're going to become what? Probably seen as a little bit more Romanized, a little bit more worldly, start to, you know, pull away from the, pull away from the true good old religion, right? because they need to keep keep status. What is What does it say there? Was It was in Luke. Why does John get in trouble? What gets him thrown in prison? Because he called Herod, and he was, things he was doing were not right. Right, 
right? Because Herod's supposed to be the, Herod's a Jew, he's supposed to be following the law, he's not. So John the Baptist, even though he's from the, a priestly line through his father, he's not working in the temple. He's got more Pharisaic tendencies too, um, certainly, in his beliefs. And Jesus, so Pharisees, resurrection, law keepers, and um, also messianically interested. So it's very interesting here that in John's gospel, John the Baptist says, one who you don't know who stands among you. Who does Jesus do a lot of his ministry with? His, who, come, who, who comes out to see Jesus? Poor people. They do, but who else? Who's really interested? Who's, who's super interested in Jesus? Pharisees. The Pharisees. Whose houses is he always eating at? The Pharisees. Pharisees. He spends, I don't want to say just as much, he probably spends more time interacting with the Pharisees. Now, they're not always on the level with him. They want to, we get this idea that it's this, um, and some parts of, of the Gospels, it does talk about the Pharisees trying to entrap and ensnare him in these sorts of things. But they're also really testing him. They're really interested, too. They probably, most of them, don't come to think that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're, they're at least investigating it. And you can see that being more the case, I think, if Jesus is part of the Pharisaic movement. And was living as a Pharisee himself. Now, he starts to make all these changes that and teach differently. But he's clearly got some, there, there are people that call him and accept him as rabbi right off the bat. Modern Judaism in a lot of ways, not, they, it, it doesn't still retain the title, but modern Judaism stems from Pharisaic Judaism. There is no temple, at least not that the majority of Jews recognize being a place where you go and currently do sacrifice, right? There is synagogues and rabbis. These were Pharisaic type movements. Jesus takes on the title rabbi, which isn't, um, and again, let's, if we go back to what we were looking at in the Old Testament, when we were in like Exodus and all that, when do you ever hear about rabbis? This is a trick question. You don't. You don't. It's not, it's not an official position. The official positions are priests and... Oh, yeah, the, the Levitic uh, priestly line and all this sort of stuff. And these other positions that are built around temple worship. The rabbi thing starts later. The, the teaching Judaism and a Judaism that is more interested in connecting with your average Jew and connecting them to the faith starts later. Because yeah, there were these laws that were to be kept, but um, the center and heart of Judaism under a temple system is the temple. 
the center and heart of Judaism in Pharisaic rabbinical Judaism is the people and how they keep the law and how they observe the covenant with God. That's not to say that was completely not important to when Temple Judaism was established, but you can always go take your turtle doves to the temple and make it right. Um, but as far as, you know, is weekly worship established? No. Not at first. You have to keep these festivals, and you have to take the Sabbath off, but you don't have to study Torah. You don't have to really study the law. That's not your job. Pharisaic Judaism, rabbinic-based, people-based Judaism, starts to bring it it's a reformation, much like the Christian church actually winds up going through, which is completely ironic and funny, but to start to draw things from just this top-heavy, do this occasionally, we'll take care of the rest, we'll take care of God, to, oh no, this is about all of us. And so the Pharisees were kind of hammering, in a sense, on everyone and their practice of the faith. Why? because they cared about them. It's, it's not a bad thing. They thought that if you are a member of the covenant, you should be observing the law, you should know the law, you should be a practicing Jew. And that the religion is also for you to participate in, in a much fuller way than it had been. Jesus certainly picks up on this, right? And he increasingly takes the Pharisaic idea, and Paul clearly picks up on this too, that this is for everyone. And Jesus, and then Paul, working from the lesson of Jesus, continues to expand this to everyone. So maybe John is saying here, and there's good reason to speculate too, Jesus is part of the Pharisaic movement. He takes up the title rabbi very quickly. And people recognize him as that. We just get so used to the Pharisees and the Sadducees being these bad guys in the Gospels, especially through like know, Sunday school songs, like, you know, Sadducee or Sadducee or whatever it is, that they just seem like these enemy forces. No, these were Jesus' neighbors. In fact, they might have been his own group of people. And it would make sense with the way that he ministers. The Lord be with you. God, we give you thanks for the time to open up the word and, and learn more about the, the history and life of Jesus, our Lord. Continue to inspire us with his lesson and example that we might find ways to glorify you in our lives and to bring your good news to others. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, bye, Jean. Uh, Mary, uh, you're going to